Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Have you ever heard of Alex Malarkey? Would you trust a story by a person that told you about a bunch of malarkey? <laughs> well, you know about him probably from 2010. There were a couple of books that came out that year that were about heaven. Alex Malarkey was a young boy who uh, supposedly had come back from heaven. Do you remember that book? The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. It was after a 2006 traffic accident when he almost died and so did his dad. And he claims that he had uh, spiritually entered heaven and he recounts his events up there. His father, Kevin, helped him publish a book then, which interestingly enough, Kevin kept all the royalties for that. And um, it sold a million copies. Unfortunately, later, Alex and his mother, Beth, completely repudiated all that they had said, just about all that they had said in that book, and said that most of it was fabrication and exaggeration. In the same year, another book came out, Heaven is for Real. <clears throat> and this was about Colton Burpo. He was a little three-year-old boy who had had an appendectomy, emergency appendectomy, almost died. They thought he had the flu, and his parents took him back into the hospital when the medicine they gave him was not working, and they discovered he had appendicitis, and he almost died. But during that experience in the hospital, he also claims to have had visions of heaven. Supposedly, he entered heaven, and uh, he, when he came back, he was just three, and about six months later, he told his parents about this, and they wrote a book about it as well. Uh, what's interesting about this is he recounted events in his family history that could not be explained in, in, in any reasonable, rational way that he should know as a three-year-old. So that gave the rest of the book some credibility. And in it, he said that he met Jesus on a rainbow-colored horse and that he sat in Jesus' lap while the angels sang to him. He saw Mary kneeling before God's throne. Well, the book sold 10 million copies, and a motion picture was made of it, and it made over $100 million. The difference between these two stories is that the Burpos stick to their story. They say that it was a true account. And, you know, who am I to say that he didn't have these visions, and how do I know, how could I explain rationally that he would know about these things about his family? I, I don't know. But I do know this, a little Burpo boy was not the first, nor I think will he be the last person to claim to have heavenly visions. There was a Swedish philosopher and uh, scientist back in the 18th century by the name of Emanuel Swedenborg, and if you've studied church history, you know about him. He was a mystic, and he wrote a series, a compendious series of books about his visions. And he said that 
Christ had granted him the ability spiritually to enter heaven, not only to enter heaven, but to enter hell, and also to communicate with angels and demons. Well, uh, I don't know much about that, but what I do know is this. Such visions as the Malarkey vision and the Burpo vision and the Spadenborg vision do not give us definitive, credible evidence that heaven exists. Now, I'm not discounting their visions, but we can't rely on those. There's only one place that we can go. I, I know that there have been mystics throughout the ages, and I know that, that Christ probably has appeared to people in visions. I, I don't question that. But the only place that we can go for absolute, clear proof and evidence that heaven exists, and the little that it tells us about heaven, what heaven's like, is a scripture. It doesn't give many details about it. You know that. If you've ever, if you've ever decided to preach a, a message on heaven, there aren't a lot of details about heaven. Where would you go? Where's the first place you'd go? New Testament, which book? Revelation, which chapter? 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and then 22 that talks about the river of life. I do know that. I know this also, too. As far as the scripture says, nobody's ever gone there without dying, except we assume that when Enoch was translated, he was there, and then he was not. He was with the Lord. And who else? Elijah. Yeah. But apart from that, we have no evidence that everybody has entered heaven, been with God in eternity without dying, in fact, including our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Even he had to die to go to heaven. I would suggest to you this, too. You have to die twice. You have to die spiritually, and then you have to die physically. And I'm going to stretch a metaphor a little bit when I say this. Please understand what I mean. And the Lord did the same thing. Now, when I say die spiritually, he did not have a non-existence. But how else can you take Philippians 2? He who thought it not robbery to be equal with God did what? He poured himself out. Wow. He gave up more to become man than we give up to go to be with him. He died to self. And then, of course, he died physically. To see heaven before Jesus comes. Okay, and if he comes, then we don't go through death. Uh, those before us do, but we will go to be with him. But to see heaven before Jesus comes requires one to die, and not just to die physically, but to die spiritually. And that is what Paul talks about in this passage tonight. Looking at the text, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, we're in the middle of a series in Ephesians about our identity our identity in Christ. And this tells us, we've talked about the identity already, this tells us where we came from to get that identity. So if you would read with me, this will be on two slides for you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them who we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, 
indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But the good story is on the next slide. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, the context for this is our identity in Christ. And we have already been through that in chapter 1. What do we learn from that? Our identity is first that we're holy. We have been chosen holy and blameless. Secondly, that we are family. We've been predestined for what? Adoption as children of God. And then thirdly, we saw that we're rescued. We're rescued and redeemed. We're forgiven in verse 7 of chapter 1. This makes us heirs, heirs to a predestined inheritance in verse 11. And we're secure in that because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit with his pledge, not just what he says, but his presence as a pledge, an imprimatur on our soul. We've been enlightened by the Spirit. The eyes of our heart have been enlightened. And then finally, we heard last week, that we're God's people, we're God's church. After Christ has been raised to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and has authority over everything, he has been given to the church and we are his people. So that's our identity in chapter 1, but the identity continues in kind of an inverted way here. What we do is we see how we got to that identity, what brought us to that identity, and also what it means for the future. And tonight I want to look at it as you might expect, in three different ways. In verses 1 through 3, we see that we are rescued from the dead. That's where we came from. In verses 4 through 6, we are transformed by incredible gift, by God's rich mercy and His great love. We're transformed by that gift of God. That's how we came to that identity. And then finally, it's not just about where we were and where we are, but it's a promised future that we have ahead and the promised riches forever. So as we look at the first part of this in verses 1 through 3, we have been rescued from the dead. The previous state was necros, the Greek word for dead. Literally, we were dead. We were like dead men walking, sort of like spiritual zombies. And we know the cause of that death, obviously. Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. The author in the Old Testament, Solomon, Proverbs, tells us that there is a way that seems right to men, but the end of that path is what? It is death. So we were in that death zone, spiritual zombies. And he talks about two kinds of disobedience here that led to that. He said we were in our trespasses, and in our sins. And you might see those almost as synonymous. You might say, well, he is reemphasizing the idea of sin there. Maybe. I think it's a little more subtle than that. The word trespass actually means to, to fall. Instead of being upright, to kind of fall. You might think of it as maybe it's not quite falling away. But you begin to fall. 
off the, the beam. And of course, the word for sin, you know, most of you know what that is, hamartia. That is to miss the what? To miss the mark, to miss the target. You know, Jerome, the, uh, the Latin scholar who uh, translated the Vulgate, he said, whenever you see these two words together, usually trespass talks about intent, and the hamartia, the sin, talks about the misdeed itself. And I think there may be some truth to that. Some say when you see them together that trespass is the lesser of the two. It's, it's, it's maybe uh, uh, an error in judgment. So, for example, in Galatians 1, it says to be gentle with one who is caught in trespass. Maybe just an error of the ways without it being an intentional sin. I don't think that that can be applied here. Uh, because both transgression on the one hand and sin on the other are both integral ingredients, key ingredients to this death that we have. I think they're equally culpable. So I would say that maybe what's happening here is that sort of like what Jerome was saying, maybe transgression is the beginning to fall away. It's when the mind begins to drift from the things of God. When temptation begins to take hold and begins to lure us away, to fall off the beam. And then it gives full birth to what? Sin. What does that sound like? Doesn't it? I heard somebody say James. It sounds like James, doesn't it? Where he says, when lust is conceived, it does what? It gives birth. It brings forth what? Sin, and that sin leads to death. And I think this is maybe what Paul's talking about, you know? Uh, it was a death that was brought about by first being drawn away from the things of God and trespass. Our mind being taken off of godly things and then we sin. The extent of this death, this deadly lifestyle, that the scope of it in this passage, though, is that it's in the past. He says, we were formerly that. Now, we were fully that, but it was former. He said, you walked in tre trespasses and sins. And it's, it's a verb, it's a word that we get peripatetic from. You walked around it fully. Your whole lifestyle was involved in this. And, it, and it's the kind of verb that says, you were fully engaged in this, but thank goodness, Paul says, it is what? Former. It is in the past. And there are three spiritual influences we see that cause people to be in this kind of zombie state. What are they? The course of this world the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is even now working in the sons of disobedience. So what does it mean when it says the course of this world? The picture that I get here is, I mentioned this this morning, in a world of entropy, in a world of declining energy, in a, in a world that's deca decaying and collapsing. It's as though we are being drawn in, in this age of the cosmos into a downward spiral. And in fact, that's what this phrase in the course of this world means. It's in line with the age of the cosmos. Now, the word age, ion, in Greek can be used in positive ways, but sometimes it's used in negative ways. The age, the age. In Ephesians, a little later, we'll come to this in chapter 6, our struggle is with the rulers and darkness of this ion, of this age. He's talking about that age, the age of darkness. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, 
He says, the God of this ion, the God of this age, has done what? He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So I believe that Paul here in Ephesians is using that term age in a very negative sense. And the word cosmos, it can be a neutral kind of word. It can be a positive word. But often the word cosmos is negative itself. So, for example, in John 1, 19, uh, the gospel tells us that the light came into the darkness of this cosmos. So it's a dark term there. In John 17, it's this same cosmos that when Jesus is praying to the Father, this world, this cosmos, that hated him and his disciples. In 1 John, in the epistle in chapter 5, it says, We are of God, and the whole cosmos lies in wickedness. So you put those two things together. Being in line with the age of the cosmos is being in line with the course of this dark and depraved world. And that's where we were. One of the causes for trespasses and sin that bring death. And then he talks about the prince, the power of the air. Well, that's easy. This ruler, this archon, well, we know about whom that is speaking. When Jesus then went into a house and he was surrounded by so many that they could not eat and his family came there and they thought that he was out of his mind, there were the rulers, the religious rulers, the scribes that came from Jerusalem, and they said that he is possessed by a demon. By whom does he cast out demons? By the prince of demons, by Beelzebub. That's who's being spoken about here. The power of the air, an angelic being who existed before Adam and Eve. Is he supernatural? Mm. Is he supernatural? We'll go back to our series in the morning. The theistic belief is that there is one who is supernatural. Supernatural, before nature, above nature, and it is God alone. Is Satan supernatural? No. No. Is he a spiritual being? Yes. Does he have powers that we don't have? Yes. But is he supernatural? No. Is he under the authority of God? Yes. Can he do anything that God does not let him do? No. Yet he is more powerful than we. And we're reminded, of course, which we will see later in Ephesians before the armor of God, that we are at war with wicked powers, power, spiritual forces of wickedness, and what? In heavenly places with angelic forces. His authority, the good thing about it is, we know this, his authority is confined to, to this evil world, to this cosmos. John 14, the ruler of this cosmos is coming, Jesus says. He's talking about Satan. But he has nothing in me, he says. Two chapters later, he reminds us that the ruler of this cosmos will be judged. And then 1 John tells us, Greater is he that is in you than he, speaking about Satan, who is in the what? In the world, in the cosmos. So these are, these are great affirmations to us. We can overcome the world. And eventually, Jesus says in John 12, that the ruler of this cosmos will, in fact, be what? Cast out. So that's a second influence, which we do not need to fear anymore. Because we have victory being rescued by God. There's a third influence, and it's the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. 
This is a spirit that's, in, that's compatible with unbelief. It really means a spirit of disobedience. No, it's stronger than that. It's an obstinate kind of disbelief and unbelief. And it is still at work, he says. It is still being energized among those who do not follow Christ. Amongst the sons of disobedience. Those have not been rescued out of the age of this cosmos. And we're told about what these sons of disobedience will face. Later in Ephesians, the sons of disobedience in chapter 5, when we come to that in verse 6, it will say that the wrath of God is still upon the sons of disobedience, the children of disobedience. And he repeats this in Colossians 3. They will be destroyed, the sons, the children of disobedience in Romans 9. Though God is patient, Though God waits, he is patient with the subjects of his wrath. They, if they do not repent, are subject to what? To destruction. And in Romans 9, he contrasts this, he contrasts this with not the children of wrath, but what's the opposite of the children of wrath? You might think it's the children of love. It's not. What's the opposite of children of wrath? In Romans 9, we find it's the children of mercy. God's mercy. We'll come back to that in just a moment, though, about the children of disobedience. Paul's own testimony then comes in verse number 3. This is interesting. He doesn't just talk about where they were. He also talks about where he was. He was like they were. Among them we too all formerly lived, even as the rest. He reminds us that every person, is born as a child of wrath, headed for destruction. Even Paul. And he includes his fellow disciples. Even we, you see, were there. Even we were sons of disobedience, he's saying. And, and not, not just among those who are unbelievers now. We, too, at one time were. You see, we lived in such a way, and the verb that is used here is we conducted our lives like we were being turned here and turned there directed away from the things of God, our whole conduct of life. It's a passive verb. We were driven by something outside, even as the rest that are children of wrath to an ungodly lifestyle. And then he describes this later in verse number 3, what that lifestyle was like, even as the rest. He reminds us that all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Paul's reminding us very personally here from his experience. I was there too. I'm not just preaching at you. <laughs> I'm talking from experience. So what is this ungodly lifestyle that he talks about? The picture I get here is a person that's drowning in their trespasses and sin. Because of what? They're paralyzed, they're drawn down into the waters of death because of what? They are lured by the lust of the flesh and the desires of the flesh and the mind. And Paul's talking about himself here as well. We lived in the lusts of our flesh. It literally means the cravings of our flesh. And this just isn't about sex. This is about every lustful thought that takes us away from God. Epithumia. It's a desire, a craving, a desire for what is forbidden. When Jesus talks about the, the seeds, 
you know, it, the third kind of seed fell amongst the what? The thorns. And what did the thorns do? They rose up and they choked the seed so that it did not bear fruit. And why did it do so? What does he parallel that with? It was because of the lust that you th have of the things of the world. So it's not just about sexual lust. It's about lusting after things that we should not, that choke out the seed. In Romans 6, Paul reminds us, don't let your sin reign in your bodies, that you obey your body's lusts. Put on the Lord, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts, he says in Romans 13. He exhorts us to walk in the Spirit so that you and I do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And when we have been bought by Christ and we submit to Him, we then learn gradually to purge ourselves of those lusts, to help the Holy Spirit to purge us of those lusts. Those who are Christ then have been crucified to the affections of the lust of the flesh. I believe that that's a process for most of us in Galatians 5. So we lived in the lust of the flesh, and then we indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Well, what's the difference here? Indulge means that we submitted to the will of. We submitted to the will of the flesh. Well, I can see how that would lead to sin. We do the bidding of the flesh. This is sort of like the lust of the flesh, the sarks, those lustful physical passions. But then he also says, and he, and, and he, he identifies this with a willful kind of power upon us. You see, the will of the mind that leads us astray. Well, what can be bad about that? Isn't the mind a good thing? The mind's a good thing and the flesh is bad. No, that's, that's Greek dualism. <laughs> is the flesh itself bad? No, the flesh isn't bad. We're going to talk next week about Jesus Christ came incarnate in the flesh. The flesh in itself isn't bad. It's the lust of the flesh that's bad. We have this way of looking at life. Even today, though, in the, in the modern world, we are almost are dualists. We think of the flesh as bad and the mind as good. Well, the mind can be just as depraved and corrupt as the flesh can. And in fact, the word that is used here is not the normal word for mind. It's, it's a word that means thinking and imagination. And that's not bad in itself, but the idea that you get, it's, it's not just the things that you think. But it's when your imagination begins to carry you away from the things of God. It's a kind of human understanding that is susceptible to being clouded by the prince of this world. He blinds our mind as well as our eyes, you see. It, it's used in Ephesians later in chapter 4 when it talks about a pagan understanding a kind of pagan imagination which has become darkened. So this isn't just that the, the thinking that we do is wrong. It's when there are imaginations of the mind that carry us away from the things of God. So before we sin in the flesh, often what has happened in the imagination of the mind, we have sinned in the mind. So this is a thoroughgoing ungodly lifestyle that Paul is talking about. And the consequences, and we come back then to children of wrath. I didn't want to leave the children of wrath and wrath, okay? <laughs> uh, what, what then are the alternatives, you see? All persons begin as ungodly children of wrath. We are all born into sin, and eventually there comes a time when we then conceive of sin ourselves, and we stray from God. Every person then becomes a sinner, and we become children of wrath. 
And that great Reformation passage, Romans 16, 17, and 18, Romans 1, 16, 17, and 18, puts it pretty, pretty graphically. It says that the wrath of God does what? It is revealed against all what? Ungodliness. That's the bad news. But the good news that Luther discovered in that text is the gospel, two verses earlier, gives us the remedy. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, but the gospel is God's power for salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So there's a remedy for the children of disobedience. Whoever does not believe in the Son of God, we're told in John 3. Paul, not Paul, John tells us a little bit later after, after that great John 3.16 passage in 3.36 that the wrath of God remains on those who do not believe in the Son of God. That's the bad news. But there's a remedy. The good news is, in Romans 5, that we can be rescued from that wrath by what? By the blood of Jesus Christ, which we will talk about Sunday morning in the Incarnation. So all of this has to do with where we have been rescued from to be brought into this identity. And then we are transformed by God's gift in verses 4 through 6. What is the divine drive? Listen to this. What's the divine drive in these three verses? But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is the divine drive in that passage? I think we see two motivations. Two godly motivations because they're part of His character. They are who He is. God is what? Love, and He's kind, and God is merciful. I think those are the two divine drives in this, in this passage. He is rich in mercy. He's already talked about this in chapter 1. He's talked about the richness of His grace in chapter 1, verse 7, in the second uh, message that we had on identity. And that grace is what grants us forgiveness through Christ's redemption, the richness of His grace. That's expression of His mercy. This rich mercy is not without a price. Think about richness and the richness of God's gift to you. Did it come without a price? No. No. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, Though Christ was rich... He became what? He became poor for us. So we receive the riches of Christ, but because He poured Himself out. And then He was obedient to death, even on the cross. This rich mercy is paralleled a little bit later at the end of this passage that we cover today. It shows us the purpose of His richness of His mercy so that He might fulfill His divine purpose. So that we might have what? the surpassing riches of Christ. And the extent of the riches of this mercy, once again, that passage that I talked about in Romans 9 earlier, continues then when it talked about the children of wrath. Then it says, however, there is something else that is prepared for the children of mercy. He has prepared for the children of mercy those that then have submitted to the Lordship of Christ and have received the mercy of God and by His grace are saved. He has prepared the riches of His glory. They become objects of His mercy, not objects of His wrath. 
And it's not just for the Jew, he tells us here. That's in that passage where he talks about the Jew and the Gentile. But now it has been extended to all, to the Gentiles, so that those who were not a people because of God's richness of his mercy can become what? Not just a people. Those who were not a people can now become what? Children of God. The richness of God's mercy. And the second driving motive is his great love. And of course, John 3.16. How much does he love us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The unfathomable love of Christ. A lot of this is repeated in Ephesians. You come to the third chapter of Ephesians and we find there then that the unfathomable love of Christ, which does what? It surpasses all understanding. It's that great. It's not just a static love here. It sounds like he's repeating himself. His great love with which he loved us. Why doesn't he he just say his great love? Because he wants us to to make sure that we understand it's not just a static love. It's not just that God is love, but God loves. And God doesn't just love generally. says what? Loved us. The heir is a verb there. Definitively, at a point in time expressed his love as fully as could possibly be expressed to you and for you and to me and for me. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. You see, at a point in time, fully, it's that great love, and it is applied to us individually. You know, you put these two ideas together, these two motives, the, the richness of his mercy. He is always merciful, the psalmist tells us, and his great And they come together in that Hebrew concept of hesed. You know, that, that works both ways in the, in the Hebrew. The hesed mercy of God is the love of God. And he rescued us when? Not when we deserved it, but it says here, when we were dead... We were necros. We were dead men and women walking in our transgressions, undeserving, impotent, unable to save ourselves because we were spiritually dead. And then, God's, then comes God's great rescue in verses 5 and 6. There are three divine acts of mercy and love here. You see them in the passage. What are they? He made us alive, and then he raised us, and then he seated us. And yes, I use those in the past tense. He made us alive, he, res- he raised us, and He seated us. You see, those are historical acts that were completed in Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead, in a way, historically, we were made alive. When Christ was raised, we were raised. And when Christ was seated, we were seated. Those are aorist verbs, completion in the past. But we know what that means. That means that it must then have an individual fulfillment in our lives, and it points us to a future where those will then be complete in us individually. So that we, in fact, each one of us, must be made alive in that accomplished fact in history. We each must be raised as Christ was raised, and we must be seated someday at the right hand with with Him of God. He has made us alive together with Christ. What does that mean? 
Well, at the resurrection, that's the basis for our resurrection, the historical resurrection of Christ. And it lays a basis for what Jesus said to Nicodemus. We must be what? Born again. We must be made alive. And even though it's not used here, it's not expressed here, we know that that means that we must then die to self, to be granted new birth. And our new birth is being made alive, and it must be applied individually. What does it mean to be alive then, to be made alive in Christ? Probably the quintessential passage in the New Testament that describes this is Galatians 2. Which verse do you think? 2.20. It describes what Paul is talking about here. I have been what? Been made alive with Christ? No, what does it say? I have been crucified with Christ. And then, contrary to being dead, it says, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, there's nothing wrong with the flesh in itself. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Being made alive then is to be saved. Isn't it interesting? Now next week, I sort of, you know, I, I was a little bit envious and jealous that somebody else got Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 for next week, you know. Great, Pat. Are you preaching next week? Yeah. Yeah. For by grace you're saved. I won't get into that, okay. But why does he say it here? He's going to say it just in a couple of verses, by grace you've been saved. But he says it here. Why? I think he says it here because he wants us to know that to be made alive is to be what? To be saved. To be made alive is to be saved. That's what he's saying here. We who were dead in our sins have been made alive. In Colossians 2, he, he, he uses this made alive with. It's the only other place in Scripture where it's used. And see what he says here. Listen carefully. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, sounds like this passage, he made you alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now that passage is not used here in Ephesians 2. That is, forgiven us all of our transgressions. We're in our transgressions and we have been made alive but what's not explicitly said in this passage is that we've been forgiven of our transgressions. And he says that in Colossians 2. My point is this. What he says in Colossians 2 explicitly is implied in this passage. What does it mean to be saved? For by grace you've been saved. It means to be made alive. And what does it mean to be made alive? We have been what? Forgiven. But you know why Paul doesn't say it in this passage? Because he has already said it. He's already said it in chapter 1, verse 7, which I think, Chris, did you preach on that? In whom you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to what? The riches of his grace. So he's already said it. What it means to be saved is to be made alive. And what it means to be made alive is we've been forgiven. Forgiven of that being a part of the age of this world, the lust of the flesh, Submitting to the lust of the flesh and the and of the mind. This salvation, it's kind of subtle here, but I think there is a basis for our saying that this salvation is an ongoing process. We have been made alive. That's the beginning condition. And then it says you have been saved. It literally means you are the ones having been saved. You are the ones being. 
You're continuing. And you have been saved, and that verb is a pass, it's a it's a perfect verb. So you were saved and it continues. The idea here is you weren't just saved at one point, you continue to be saved. And you're growing in that salvation. And then Paul later, of course, tells us because of this that we are to work at our salvation with fear and trembling. And how have we been saved? We'll find out next week. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace, through faith. Raised up with Him, then. This is how we're made alive. By the power of the resurrection. We died a self first. Well, Christ died first. Then we died a self. We believe in Him. And the Holy Spirit inhabits us and gives us new life. Romans 8 says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. And we are raised then in what? In faith. We're buried with Him in baptism, and we are raised through faith, the operation of God who has raised Christ from the dead, and we are seated with Him. And that's the last of the blessings, the rich blessings. What does it mean? In chapter 1, we know that he is seated in spiritual places and he guards the spiritual blessings that we have. Peter tells us those blessings are an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's permanent in heaven. And he guards those in heaven. He has sealed us with the touch of his spirit so that we will have that imperishable inheritance. And if we have been raised in Christ we will then someday have a place in the Father's house. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, we're told, what are we, to do? what are we to do? Don't keep seeking the things of this world, but seek the things that are in heavenly places where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then finally, we're promised the riches forever. In verse number 7, So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What do, you, what do you think the ages to come is talking about? What does it contrast with? What does that sound like? Ages? At one time we were in line with the age of the cosmos. Now we are in line with the ages to come. And the way it's put here, it's the even now the ages are coming. Christ has inaugurated that new age. He's coming back. It has already begun, and it's got momentum, and it is coming to us. And it is in sharp contrast with that age of the cosmos that we have left. And in this, we get a glimpse of eternity. And I would suggest that it's a conditional kind of situation. He says that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Because it's conditional. It is a subjunctive verb that he might expose our eyes, you see, to the riches of his grace. What are the two conditions? Number one, that the age of Christ is fulfilled. It's a coming, but we will not see it fully until what? He returns or until we go with him, go to be with him. But there's a second condition, and it's found at the end of the verse. Toward us in Christ. It is a promise, it is a blessing that is promised only to those that are in Christ, but it's certain, so that you may know those blessings. The surpassing riches of His grace can be read a couple of ways. Riches that are produced by His boundless grace, or it can mean boundless riches that are products of His grace by their very nature. What we do know is this, 
they surpass anything that we can imagine. It's found five times, this word surpassing. It's the word hyperbalo. It means to throw over or throw beyond. It's beyond anything. It's a home run. It goes over the fence, you know. It's used three times in Ephesians here. And the other couple of times it talks about this surpassing nature of God's grace and His love. We've already seen it in chapter 1. The exceeding riches, the surpassing riches of God's grace. And we'll see it again in chapter 3. That you may know the love of Christ that exceeds all understanding. These riches of His grace and the riches of His mercy matches great love. And the picture that we get is something that is beyond our imagination. And this isn't that worldly imagination. This is our spiritual imagination. It goes beyond what we can possibly conceive. And you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 about that. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which has not entered into the heart of the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him, the objects of his mercy who have moved outside the circle of his wrath. Why does God do this? Why does God do this? Because he is good, he is gracious, and he is kind. The graciousness of God. He is gracious by nature. He is giving by spirit. We talked this morning about he created everything and everything was what? Good. He is a giver of good things. And he's kind. Relates to what we were talking about this morning. That word kind means moral goodness. What is the basis of moral goodness in this universe? God. The argument from good this morning. We need to be better as Christians when we talk to unbelievers. When they have questions about evil and suffering. To remind them that God is good. He is the giver of good and perfect things. And is the source of all moral good. He's the ultimate good. And the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit includes these two. Kindness, that is gentleness, and goodness. Only, only because of His kindness do we have an effective remedy for the past condition that we were in. And only because of His kindness, I would suggest, do we have an answer to the question that was raised this morning about evil and suffering. Let me close with this. In Titus 3, it says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Sounds like he's saying the same thing to Titus, doesn't it? Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That sounds like the world around us of evil and suffering. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, what's he talking about? Who is the kindness of God? Jesus Christ. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His what? His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit. And how does God do this? Last phrase. Toward us in Christ Jesus. What does that phrase mean? Well, I think the, all these spiritual blessings come in Him. First of all, He earned them at the cross by His actions in Him. He earned those blessings. 
in his person in heaven. He resides in heaven and he guards those treasures. In him, they are applied to us through his spirit. And then finally, in him, those blessings are bestowed upon those who were found not as children of wrath, but children of mercy who were in him. Once we were children of wrath and disobedience, we have been rescued from a life of the age of this cosmos, from our lusts and our sinful desires. We have been made alive. We've been saved. We've been raised in Christ. We have been seated in heavenly places already. We simply have to claim that inheritance. And we have a future to look forward to. The treasures of God's blessings and the riches of his mercy, which he guarantees for those who are in Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.